Okay, welcome everybody once again. Um, this is the last of these nine lectures this term on thinking like a social scientist. So in one sense it gives me great pleasure to introduce John, but in, in another sense it's the end of quite a nice nine weeks of these lectures every Thursday. And I would like to take the opportunity, because it's the last of them, to say thank you to everybody, including John, before, they've even, before John's even given his lecture. Um, we'll do this again. I already know that, because uh, I think it's been... I've got some good feedback from it, and I've got that good feedback both from students and from people outside and from my colleagues who've participated and attended. And I know I probably should have said all of that at the end of John's lecture, but you all disappear so quickly at two o'clock, I thought I'd have you while you're a captive audience rather than wait till the end. But then what I really want to do is introduce John. Um, he's the Sir Patrick Gillam Professor of International and Comparative Politics. His appointment is between the Government Department and the International Relations Department. And I suppose that means he's in the politics group, and I suppose that the London School of Economics and Political Science is what the political science part of what we do. So I'm wondering if he can explain to us why we don't have a department of political science and what political scientists do that people at the LSE don't do uh, to attract that name. But on to John. Hard question. <coughs> on to John. Um, he's an expert in the Philippines and Indonesia, but he does particular work on um, religious violence and transnational movement. And I'm sure we're going to get some stories on those important subjects in what he's going to say to us today. Because he works on those kinds of interesting subjects, he's asked to give advice to a pretty diverse range of parties who have an interest in that kind of study. So. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office, I guess, would be a predictable um, person requesting advice. But Standard Chartered Bank, the Ford Foundation, groups like that who are all interested in this kind of work coming out of the LSE. He's visited lots of places and done lots of interesting things, had a BA, British Academy readership, and is one of our good professors. Over to you, John. Many thanks for the invitation and for the uh, opportunity to speak here uh, uh, before you, especially insofar as I'm, I've been tasked with representing not just one but two departments in a whole realm uh, uh, of the school and um, I feel in some ways burdened by that responsibility of representation, which uh, with my government colleagues better represented here than my international relations colleagues, I can, I can, I can take a little bit more lightly perhaps. In any event, when I heard about this talk series and, and then when I was asked to participate, it reminded me, and I don't know if anyone else, maybe Arna Westott has mentioned this, of a book that came out in the 1980s called Thinking Like a Communist. And, <laughs> and, and uh, perhaps that wasn't the intention. Um, and it seems to me that there are some kind of parallels here, in, in part because it seems to me, at least in my understanding, uh, the underlying logic of thinking like a social scientist for me and, and perhaps the underlying logic of thinking like a communist is actually pretty simple, pretty simplistic, maybe pretty simple-minded. It's, uh, it's actually a slim book, Thinking Like a Communist, if you, if you want to look for it in the library. Um, but on the other hand, that kind of uh, sort of slim, quick, simplistic 
uh, theoretical exercise of imagining what it would be like to think like a communist or think like a social scientist uh, avoids the thornier and more complex questions of what it is to be and to practice as a uh, social scientist, just as in the case of practicing like a communist would be uh, so complex and politicized that one man's good communist was another man's leftist deviationist or leftist uh, uh, adventurist or rightist deviationist. So uh, today what I'd like to focus on is not some kind of theorization of what I think a social science uh, scientist is, but rather what I have done as a social scientist and then to try and place that appropriately enough uh, given my disciplinary background and interests and given that this is the final uh, lecture in the series and the departments I'm representing to place it in what I think is its proper, among other things, political context. Now, my sort of modus operandi as a social scientist is uh, distinctively problem or puzzle driven uh, based on an understanding of the world of politics as very much patterned and thus in some measure predictable but also driven in terms of a process of, of practicing social science, driven by the appearance of apparent anomalies or deviations or surprises, happily enough, against the backdrop of those sort of observed regularities uh, in politics, which have already been mapped or gridded, and thus appear sort of obvious, uh, uninteresting, undeserving of further attention uh, and inquiry. And to date, all of my research and writings have been driven by problems and puzzles in specific uh, in the region of Southeast Asia. And politics in a region that I have come to know through years of study and spending time and living and conducting research that, uh, in that part of the world, and thus in not just intellectual problems and puzzles, but real world puzzles and problems as well. In some case, very grubby, unfortunate, uh, terrible problems. And these problems and puzzles are real and thus attract my interest not simply because uh, they represent uh, ignorance or misunderstandings or misrepresentations that I think are intellectually uh, indefensible or problematic, but also because uh, beyond the academe, they also represent forms of ignorance and misrepresentation, misunderstanding that I think in broader terms are politically uh, reprehensible and pernicious. So there's a kind of political uh, agenda here as well. And in the face of these sorts of puzzles and problems, my method is a kind of simple-minded, relentless process, uh, kind of exercise that I would describe as sort of hyper-comparativism, a very narrow, almost microscopic at times, uh, process of qualitative research. Um, and that's in uh, the sort of the way I understand myself, and let me try to explain in concrete terms uh, what that means. The first um, serious bit of research I, I conducted uh, for uh, academic purposes um, for my PhD and my first book uh, unfolded in the aftermath of the 1986 so-called people power revolution in the Philippines, which saw the dramatic and sort of uh, heartwarming overthrow of a hated dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, by a so-called people power revolution, and thus was celebrated as a kind of harb, a sort of uh, heralding of democratic and democratizing trends around the world, people power revolutions thus unfolding uh, in other parts of the world in subsequent years and decades. And yet what was quite marked for people living, working, and studying in the Philippines in the late 1980s was that in the aftermath of this dramatic people power revolution, 
you saw actually on the ground in province after province, often district after district, municipality after municipality, that as it were, although the national level dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, had been overthrown, that locally the same people who'd been running the towns, the same people who'd been holding the congressional seats, the same people who'd been provincial governors for decades at a time were still there, that they were re-elected, they or their family members, uh, in astonishing numbers in the elections of 1987 and 1988, so that under the sort of rubric or veneer of democracy, you could see local patterns of authoritarianism thriving around the country. How to understand this? Well, this puzzle was, for many people, easily resolvable in terms of Filipino culture. There were distinctive features of Filipino culture that uh, reflected people's, ordinary people's sort of desire for local forms of leadership that were perhaps authoritarian from a distance but understood to be legitimate locally. And yet this didn't square with the reality that the elections that were held in the late 1980s were conducted with a great deal of violence and vote buying, thus suggesting that something else other than spontaneous legitimacy was necessary to secure the continued rule of these uh, local officials. Also, if you looked beyond the Philippines, you could see that this style of politics is reminiscent of politics in a variety of other settings far from Philippine shores, old corruption England, uh, urban machine politics in the United States, to name some obvious, uh, very distant examples. Another standard explanation for the Philippines uh, having this kind of politics was land ownership. The idea was that somehow the Philippines was sort of like a, a little patch of Latin America that had floated off from the Pacific into Southeast Asia and was anomalous in terms of patterns of large-scale land ownership, plantations, and so forth. And yet, if you looked closely at the forms of uh, of uh, local authoritarianism around the country, you found that they correlated very weakly with concentrations of large land ownership and were found indeed in, in areas of smallholder agriculture. Moreover, more or less at the same time, a process of democratization was unfolding in nearby Thailand, which was not at all known for large-scale plantation agriculture and where a very similar pattern of local politics was soon observable, beginning to look very much like the Philippines. Thus, even today, as Indonesia has followed the Philippines and Thailand on the path of democratization, people talk about, in some measure, the Filipinization of Indonesian politics. So what I found instead, and what I argued in my thesis in my first book, was if we think comparatively about the Philippines, um, in terms of a sort of macro comparison, try and look at the conditions which make possible, if not inevitable, certain forms of local authoritarianism, that this is understandable not in terms of some kind of political culture and not in terms of certain forms of social structure per se, but rather that is a common feature of politics in contexts where the electoralization of state power, that we often gloss as democracy, proceeds at a moment, a historical moment, in uh, the development of economy, in which the broad mass of the population remains poor, insecure, vulnerable to various kinds of pressures. The state is weakly insulated uh, in terms of its autonomy and integrity, and the state plays a crucial role in development, thus making possible a kind of state capture uh, that makes possible this kind of, of local, what I call, bossism or authoritarianism. But this kind of 
broad, bland, perhaps banal generalization, then itself didn't explain why you saw certain forms of what I call bossism or local authoritarianism in certain parts of the countries in certain, uh, in certain forms and not in others. And thus, in my research, what I did was to take two provinces in the Philippines, kind of hard cases, not remote, very backward provinces, but two rapidly industrializing, fairly urbanized and suburbanized provinces, and to look at the various forms of what I call bossism that you would find there. And what I tried to do systematically was to look in these two provinces and ask why we saw in certain places but not in others certain forms, uh, certain forms of success in the entrenchment of local bosses in certain localities to certain extents in certain ways but not others. And thus in these two provinces I looked at all of the municipalities and found which municipalities played host to the single longest reigning mayors or families that held on to mayorships, in some cases for decades at a time. Uh, and then I asked why those towns, those municipalities, played host to that kind of politics in contrast with other municipalities. What was it about these municipalities? And what was it about these specific politicians? And what was it about these specific families as opposed to others? So there was a comparison in some measure in terms of longevity and location in this regard, a microscopic comparison across multiple municipalities, likewise carried out in terms of congressional districts, provisional governors, and so forth. And here, in terms of the comparisons, there was also a comparison between these two provinces. In one province, you found a dynastic rule in which a single family would run a town for decades at a time. There's one town in which the father took over in the 1930s, the mother was in charge by the 1950s, uh, probably the best son took over by the 60s and 70s, then a really rotten son who got involved in a bank robbery, then, the, then the, the mother had to come back in and mom had to clean up after him, and then the, the sister-in-law. So a family over 70 years still running the town today. And that was a common pattern throughout this province of families. By contrast, in the other province I studied, nobody ever managed to pass on power in dynastic form. A single generation boss would persist in power in a town or a district or the province as a whole for a few decades. But then even though he had a handful of greedy, rapacious, rotten sons to take over, they never succeeded in succeeding their father. And these two provinces were also notable in terms of levels of violence. The dynastic province was one where there was very little overt violence, whereas the other one was a province in which every single town in the province had a mayor or a police chief who had been murdered or had been convicted of murder in recent memory. And while I was there, the governor had five of the mayors killed off because they in different ways displeased him. So two very different provinces, and within these provinces, enormous differences in terms of the success or failure of one or another would-be boss or would-be dynasty in consolidating and uh, maintaining power. And in terms of the explanation that I came up with after examining these two provinces and areas and municipalities within it was that the differences could in considerable measure be explained in terms of the enabling conditions that the local political economies uh, in municipality, district, or province created for the consolidation, creation of local monopolies for the control of what some used to call the commanding heights of the local economy. 
So very much a, a sort of uh, grubby meat and potatoes analysis of local economics, things like local electric companies, local bus companies, patterns of landholding, fishing, um, all sorts of uh, forms of local uh, monopoly, cartel, um, commodity chains, and local forms of, of economic control that themselves prefigured or impeded political concentration, dynasticism, and persistence in power. And these sorts of conditions, it seems to me, are then useful for understanding patterns, not only in these two provinces, but across the Philippines and in other contexts as well, as more recent studies uh, in southern Italy and Russia and other countries, I think, uh, attest. A second study that I undertook more recently um, and uh, that uh, Sarah alluded to concerns patterns of violence in Indonesia. And um, I spent time in Indonesia in the mid-1990s. I was there again around the time when uh, the Suharto regime fell. There's a kind of ambulance-chasing quality to uh, my research, to be sure. And in the mid-1990s in Indonesia, what seemed to be quite distinctive about the country was the emergence of what many understood as a set of anti-Chinese riots in which in provincial towns and cities around the archipelago, first in Java and then beyond, you saw a pattern of uh, rioting in which local people, crowds, would burn down the shops, shopping malls, department stores, sometimes the residences, often the houses of worship associated with the small but privileged ethnic Chinese minority in the country. And thus, as this became a regular feature of Indonesian uh, political life, uh, it was something that people began to immediately ascribe to a combination of ethnic stereotyping and resentments that dated back uh, many decades and the centuries, but also that it corresponded to a set of economic grievances in terms of the wealth of the ethnic Chinese minority business class in a country whose non-Chinese and the uh, predominantly Muslim uh, majority uh, did not really control the business class. And yet what was striking uh, to me as I spent a year in Indonesia in 1997-1998 was how in the midst of the Asian economic crisis with rising inflation, uh, with rising unemployment and hardship for ordinary Indonesians around the archipelago, that in fact this process of what everyone assumed to be scapegoating did not, in fact, grow. That, in fact, it was only with considerable uh, instigation and manipulation that a smattering of food riots unfolded in early 1998 and a military-instigated set of riots unfolded in May of 1998 in Jakarta and other major cities. In fact, in terms of spontaneous rioting against ethnic Chinese, it disappeared. What was amazing is by 1999, after people getting used to having ethnic anti-Chinese anti riots around the country by this time, just poof, they disappeared. And this called into question the underlying assumptions about whether these were, in fact, anti-Chinese riots in the first place. And indeed, if you went back to these riots, you'd see that they did not always involve primarily attacks on Chinese businesses. They involved attacks on government buildings. They involved attacks on, on uh, Christian and other non-Muslim houses of worship. 
And Christian, uh, I'm sorry, Chinese Muslims, few as they were, were often spared. And um, non-Chinese Christians uh, were, were not spared the same way. So for me then, what I began to do over subsequent years was to recast these riots as part and parcel of what evolved to be a broader pattern of religious violence, in fact, with the riots of 1995, 96, and 97, in which people attacked buildings but overwhelmingly avoided attacking people, followed by a pattern in 1998, 1999, 2000, into 2001, in which mobs, people in communities around uh, the archipelago, certain communities, attacked other people. Uh, these were murderous kinds of riots, forms of collective action, which I described as pogroms. And then beginning by 2000, 2001, and certainly taking off by 2002, a third form of violence emerged, even as these pogroms began to fade from the scene, much like the preceding riots of 95, 96, and 97, a pattern of paramilitary activity and then of bombings that I glossed conveniently enough as jihad, in which small groups of Islamist terrorists would undertake uh, violence in the name of Islam uh, through bombings which by 2002 focused upon foreign rather than Indonesian targets, nightclubs in Bali hosting foreign, mostly Australian tourists, an American hotel, the Australian embassy, and so forth. And this led to uh, another book, uh, um, titled Riots, Pogroms, Jihad, Religious Violence in Indonesia, which Sarah alluded to before. And so here, as in my first project, in some measure, there is a, a, a sort of small, in many ways, microscopic tendency to look very closely at uh, the different dimensions, the multiple dimensions of a given phenomenon, a very unpleasant phenomenon, perhaps, to look at violence in this instance. So looking at the shifting pattern of violence and trying to explain, how could we explain that riots appeared at this time, then poof, disappeared, only to be replaced by, uh, by pogroms, then disappeared, only to be replaced by something else, which I call jihad. And how can we explain, moreover, that the targets of the violence change across these three periods, the locations of the violence change, across these three periods. The protagonists, the kinds of people involved, change over time. And not only do the forms of violence change, from attacks on buildings to attacks on people to explosions, but the very ways in which people mobilize, the forms of mobilization change, and even the extent to which any of these things can be understood as religious changes over time as well. So as with my first project, the modus operandi here is to ask a kind of explanatory question about change and variation in a very microscopic way, taking incidents, individual, certain instances of a phenomenon, and looking at it in multiple ways, uh, what I call hyper-comparativism, the different dimensions of any incident of violence along these uh, multiple sort of axes of variation uh, in particular. And what I ended up arguing was a, something rather different from the kind of uh, meat and potatoes explanation um, rooted in the sort of specificities of local political economy in the towns and provinces of the Philippines. Instead, what I showed in my book is that the shifts in religious violence that you see over time in Indonesia 
correspond instead to shifts in the structures of religious authority in Indonesia during this period and to the accompanying anxieties within these structures about the boundaries and hierarchies sustaining religious authority and identity in the country. So it's not increasing religious differences that actually is driving uh, religious violence. Instead, it's the increasing dangers of these differences disappearing. The differences between uh, Christians and Muslims disappearing and instead the possibility of differences within these communities, differences among Christians, differences among Muslims, actually being more problematic. A rather counterintuitive, contrarian uh, argument in the face of standard understandings of religious intolerance and difference being exacerbated in the context of economic crisis and political transition. Now, both of these studies that I undertook were undertook with a, a real interest in subnational patterns of variation in very local politics, looking at specific towns, specific provinces, and so forth. And the kinds of sources that I engaged in uh, using in my research uh, were, in the first instance, newspapers, newspapers, newspapers. When I first went to Indonesia, I spent three months reading 20 years' worth of a provincial newspaper in Surabaya. Um, in the Philippines, court documents, land uh, records, um, uh, all sorts of documentary evidence along those lines, election records. And in the case of uh, Indonesia, alongside newspapers, a wide range of non-governmental organizations' reports on the various riots, pogroms, and so forth that you'd seen over the years, as well as a wide range of ethnographic studies which anthropologists had conducted in so many localities before the violence had unfolded. In other words, they had written, published, account after account, innocent of any kind of foreknowledge uh, of uh, what would subsequently unfold in these, in these provinces and localities, thus providing a, a close analysis of uh, the structures of religious authority in these parts of the country, innocent of that kind of hindsight. But as was mentioned uh, in Sarah's introduction, I'm also supposed to be in the Department of International Relations, where my, my sort of credibility is, is uh, a bit more uh, dubious, given my historical focus on local politics. And what I've tried to do since I've been here is expand, in, in some measure, with a more recent book, the arguments about Indonesia uh, in a broader direction, so that uh, in, in a, a short monograph I published with the East-West Center, called The Islamist Threat in Southeast Asia, a reassessment, I argue that as in Indonesia, that more broadly in the southern Philippines and southern Thailand and beyond Southeast Asia, that as other authors working in other parts of the Muslim world have suggested, that we shouldn't understand the violence undertaken in the name of Islam as a sign of an aggressive, insurgent, uh, ascendant Islam but instead that it is a sign of the weakness and internal decline, disappointment, disentanglement from state power of Islamist forces and of others who speak in the name of Islam in different parts of the world. It's a sign of weakness rather than strength. It is a sign of sore losers on the way out, often assisted by ungracious winners um, rather than the opposite. 
So and, and this kind of research then uh, begins to look a bit more like the international relations that I'm also supposed to be studying as well. So let me just conclude to give you a, a sense of how I understand this kind of research and then open up to what perhaps would be a more interesting conversation than you just listening to me for another 20 minutes. Overall, as I've suggested, my understanding and my practice of uh, social science is a kind of simple-minded, small-n, qualitative version of the comparative method with this kind of close, hyper-comparative scrutiny of multiple facets, dimensions of the phenomena I tend to study, not just looking at one riot or one local dynasty as one data point, but looking at it through many different uh, prisms in terms of different dimensions uh, along which the variation needs to be explained and I hold myself accountable uh, in my studies as a whole. Now, this could easily be attacked as perhaps leftist adventurism. Um, given the small number of cases I'm looking at, the lack of broader sort of a quantitative rigor in terms of measuring my data, apples, oranges, lots of rotten fruit in there, or it could easily be attacked as rightist deviationist for excessive structuralism and attention to contextualization at the expense of content, expense of an, at the expense of an understanding of the kind of lived experiences of those involved. And thus, over the years, I've been attacked by a famous Filipino historian as being an Orientalist. Recently, I uh, had lunch with a famous terrorist expert working in Indonesia, and she said, but none of what you said appears in the uh, you know, affidavits and interrogation records of the, the, the Bali bombers. And uh, you know, the autobiography of the Bali bombers didn't say anything about this. This is not what they were thinking about. So you know, there are different ways in which, um, from very different perspectives and different kind of modus operandi, this kind of research can be challenged. But my own concern beyond my specific research is to prove that this kind of social science can, in fact, explain more in terms of pattern of variation, patterns of variation and change than other kinds of research, at least on these topics, and can answer more important questions, solve more puzzles than the alternative approaches. And here I'd like to give a couple of examples. Over the past 10, 20 years, the World Bank has begun to sponsor a huge range of studies on local politics around the world. And I can tell you that they spend $47 million or more a year in Indonesia alone. They spend huge amounts of your taxpayers' uh, money and uh, other people's money studying local politics because they think decentralization, democratization, globalization, all these trends make it very important to understand what's going on locally in terms of patterns of corruption as they shape development, as they shape possibilities for uh, conflict and so forth. And yet, from what I've read, and I've, I've tasted and read a fair amount of this stuff, for all of the huge amounts of money going into this kind of research, for all of the, the in-depth quantitative studies that have been done across the world, there's very little yield in terms of systematic explanations rather than descriptive measurements of patterns observed across localities, despite all of the pump priming. Likewise, if we look at accounts of religious violence by so-called terrorism experts, by now in some measure we do have excellent accounts of what happened 
leading up to the Bali bombing, what happened leading up to 9-11, what happened leading up to 7-7, in terms of a kind of prosecutorial whodunit story that would explain who did what when. But this, again, doesn't add up to an explanation as to why some people at certain times engage in certain kinds of forms of violence in certain places against certain targets, but not others. And it's against these kinds of institutionally embedded and thus in some measure compromised large-scale expensive approaches to uh, these sorts of questions about the real world that I'd like to show the continuing analytical power and intellectual promise of a kind of social science that's rooted in a more fine-grained and probably sociological interest and appreciation of the social fabrics of these different societies of Southeast Asia and elsewhere. A kind of social science that maintains a real independence from institutions of power and connections instead with those who at times would challenge those institutions of power. And this kind of social science that I'm suggesting is worth, uh, worth engaging in and carries a certain kind of intellectual promise that alternatives don't for the kinds of uh, questions that interest me, in some measure is under threat. It's under threat uh, within the LSE. It's under threat uh, within political science. It's under threat with the vast expansion of uh, interest in more economistic and quantitative understandings of politics. Uh, and thus, in terms of the kind of research that I've done, I tried to present it in as not just combative a style as possible, but in as clear a kind of explanatory mode as possible and in a kind of hyper-comparative way to show that there are patterns of variation, patterns of change, explanations that I can offer that are just not there. Whatever the jargon, whatever the numbers, whatever the data that is mustered elsewhere. And to that end, I think that there is a, a whole debate in terms of what it means to be a social scientist um, that I'm facing in my research and that's it's perhaps worth ending this, uh, this talk series uh, confronting in some measure because it's there and it confronts people like me and others working in the same tradition um, as we go about our work. Uh, the communists uh, are no longer there. We're no longer interested in uh, thinking like communists. Um, but there are social scientists like me still around. Um, and we may be fading into extinction, but we, I'm not going anywhere soon, and I'm not going down without a bit of a fight. All right? Thank you. We've got time for questions, and while you ponder your first question, can I ask one? And it seems... Um, well, I've got the value of the other lectures that went before. But Arnie Westad spoke from the International History Department, and he, I mean, I summarise and probably get rid of all the subtleties in what he's saying, but um, one of the statements he made was that international history or history isn't really a social science because what historians do is look at the particular and describe it. Whereas what social scientists do is they look at the particular, but what they're aiming to produce is um, a generality. They're aiming to produce a theory or a principle or a, um, some kind of generalised explanation from a variety of particulars. What, 
When you're describing what you're doing, I think you're putting yourself in the social science camp, if that's, you know, if that distinction is valid. I'm not even sure that's a valid distinction. But you seem to be putting yourself clearly in the social science camp, so you want kind of generalised explanations out of looking at these particulars. And your complaint at the end, I think, was that the current mood is to favour um, generalisations that are based on numbers over generalisations that are based on any kind of qualitative assessment of sets of data. Is that...? Among other things, yes. Is that...? Okay. <laughs> that was a short answer. <laughs> I, well, okay. I, I, no, I can go on. Yeah. Well, you want to go on? Yeah, sure. And I'll just see who's got questions so I can work here. Um, I'm going to collect a couple. In, in terms of suggesting that there are, are uh, debates and conflicts um, worthy of consideration, I would say in the first instance, there's, there's a tendency to sublimate and suppress all manner of debate and differences, um, you know, whether within a department or within a discipline or certainly within a study uh, of a given country. I mean, if I think of all the people studying Indonesia, um, the really sad, depressing, revealing truth is that Indonesia saw democratization, all manner of political change, and there's not a single serious debate about what has happened in Indonesia since 1998. I mean, nobody is fighting with one another about saying, you're wrong, that's not true. There's, everyone seems to pretend they all, dis they all agree. And thus, I think, one of the, the, the sad things about um, uh, a tendency to, to suppress those sorts of disagreements is, is that we, we deprive ourselves of the, the pleasures of debate and, and what we would learn from it. Um, my complaint, if it's a complaint, or my, my concern, rather, is a twofold. One, that there is a tendency, not just because of quantitative data, but because of Google, because of uh, the Internet, Wikipedia, to think that there is no need, there is no value, and there's thus no prestige, status, power, uh, success attached to looking carefully um, at something for a sustained period of time when, in fact, um, the universal is beating the particular every day. The market is triumphing. The, the avalanche of numbers coming to the world is, is a great sign of progress. People are voting, so we need to look at the voting patterns. We believe that public opinion matters, so we, we poll people. Um, there are market surveys because people are consuming. It's a great thing that there are numbers conquering the world in so much. But insofar as those are taken... Um, uh, at face value to represent certain things, especially in the realm of politics, um, there's a lot that will be lost descriptively. And what I would suggest is, you know, show me the explanations. And that's where I would say I'm a social scientist. I'm interested in explaining patterns. I, I do believe that there are patterns out there and that in some measure we can at least explain, we at least can offer an account of the uh, the necessary conditions, if not the sufficient conditions, for why we would find certain things in certain places, certain times, not otherwise. The other thing that is bundled in here is a sense that the mission of the university is shifting without any attention being paid to it, insofar as the university is no longer really the major producer of knowledge. Um, if you're interested in the politics of Southeast Asia, don't go to the university to find uh, a professor to tell you about it. Go to the International Crisis Group. Go to uh, a think tank somewhere. Go to the World Bank. Go to someone outside, somewhere outside of the academe. Or find an academic whose research is firmly embedded within those institutions. 
And there's a price that that comes with, which is an, ad- an adoption of the kind of language and methods and data sets of non-academic outfits who have their own logics, their own interests, their own discourse, their own budgets, their own uh, access to grind, their own problems that they administratively need to deal with that shouldn't necessarily be, be ours. In some measure, and, and I would say it's a shame that there isn't also an anthropologist here, because in, in terms of the distinction between explanation and understanding, I think as we, and I would say we, continue to map and grid the world and sort it into boxes and make it more legible, um, we also um, do so in a way that happily or otherwise ignores um, the specific lived experience and understandings of what it might be to be in any one of those little boxes. Um, And also we do so in a way that sort of tends to kill off surprise, that tends to kill off, um, you know, the the sort of interesting and uh, important about any individual thing out there in the real world. Uh, In terms of international relations and government and so forth, obviously in part what I've uh, focused on is a kind of politics that is beyond government in a narrow sense of the word. Uh, and I think um, you know, that criticism of the Department of Government as the Department of Governmentality um, remains valid in the sense that, that the department doesn't have courses on social movements. Um, I teach the only course in the school on local politics, as far as I know. There's very little in the way of study of mobilization, of messy street politics, um, in, in the kind of way that, um, that I'm talking about here and, and teach otherwise. So I think you know, it's important to keep that alive. The messiness of the world, um, you know, at the forefront. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to push you a bit more in, in the direction of uh, where you stand on on anthropology. I guess you know you, you didn't use the word culture a great deal in, in this talk. And I was just wondering, 
to what extent could um, the kind of um, intellectual, ideological, cultural baggage people have in their heads would influence the way that they behave in similar sets of circumstances? Because on the face of it, it seems to me that your analysis could imply that given, you know, for all the sort of complexity of real situations you accept and try to map, but would, um, on the face of it, it sounds like the same set of opportunities and constraints could predict the same type of behavior in people in, uh, from in a variety of parts of the world. And I'm just wondering whether you would really buy that, or whether you would imagine there is, you know, a role for, for culture, for the way people's minds are wired in the way, mm -hmm. in, in, in interpreting the way they react in, in yeah, I, I don't mean to sell the anthropologists down the road here, um, since they're not here to defend themselves, but I think that a, a defense of area studies or a defense of a certain kind of qualitative social science that is rooted in uh, the notion of culture is, um, is doomed it, to, in the face of, of something else, not just globalization and so forth, but that um, if all you... If, if your response to the urge to explain is to hold on to the cultural particularity of the lived experience of people in, in all of their bewildering diversity, um, then, then you're letting the other people have the entire uh, uh, sort of realm of explanation to themselves and, and, and relegate yourself to the realm of, of interpreting poems, uh, as it were, um, biographies. Um, and here, I, yeah, I, I'm not at all... Um, I, I think that, that part of the, the sad fate of area studies programs in the face of social science is a tendency to hold on to culture at the expense of probably a, a discipline that's ill-represented in area studies programs around the world, uh, at least in the United States, which I know best, um, which is sociology. And instead, what I, I would say is against Margaret Thatcher's famous dictum, there's no such thing as society, I would say it's not that there are cultures around the world who, who need to be understood. There are societies that have stickiness to them. They have class structures and religious institutions and various forms of economic and social, um, you know, landscaped fixity to them that are not simply rolled over, um, uh, steamrolled over so easily. Um, so I think culture, um, what I have at times tried to do is to stop and, and say, well, you know, in this town, uh, this gangster who I'm studying in this province in the Philippines who, about whom films have been made, how is he represented? How does he represent himself? Those sorts of questions. But that's a separate exercise. And I can't help it. I'm a compulsive social scientist in the sense that I, I do want to keep on uh, explaining. Um, and that exercise is a separate one, a, a, a worthy one, but on its own, it doesn't stand a chance. Um, and thus, I, I gave a talk in the anthropology department, which I used ethnographies as sort of evidence in support of my argument, uh, arguments about Indonesia. And the anthropologist said, well, it's nice that you're reading our ethnographies, but you're using them and building with them in ways that, that anthropologists never would. So. <laughs> There's one here first, and then back to you. Hello, I'm Cristina Barrios, Department of International Relations. I'm a PhD student. I uh, was curious about your use of some terms, and you mentioned falsism and how you had uh, coined a uh, use of jihad, or um, just in general, have you reflected on why you are choosing to work with these terms, and do they work towards your generalizing or towards your study of the particular, and what is it, the use in general of 
coining these terms or using these terms in your view? Well, one thing that I think is worth arguing again here is that thinking like a social scientist need not be marked by conformity with an existing kind of jargon. And there are plenty of people who can sort of work well with an existing jargon and say absolutely nothing. In many job talks that I've been to here and elsewhere, you know, are basically an exercise in people showing that they can talk the talk without saying anything. And so it's the kinds of things that I have been studying have been at the fringes of an existing kind of jargon. So I teach a whole course at the school on local politics where I use the term local power to talk about local bosses, local despotic power, local authoritarianism, local clans, caciques. I mean, there's a whole realm of problematic terms. And I think to define something is, you know, is not something to get hung up on except insofar as it permits you or prevents you from a kind of comparative analysis. Bossism, I chose that term specifically in the Philippine case because I wanted to point the finger at the United States and say that the pattern of politics you see in the Philippines is just like what in the United States people talk about as bosses, urban machine bosses. And so the term used there is very much to show the parallels and to draw on a great literature on urban machines in the United States. And so, you know, there's a conscious choice. In terms of the term jihad, in the title of my book and otherwise, the argument is actually not that it's riots, pogroms, jihad with a sort of takeoff of violence. It's actually a tremendous narrowing of violence in Indonesia and elsewhere in which far fewer Muslims are mobilized behind violence in some measure than ever before, certainly in recent memory. Not more, but fewer. In fewer incidents of violence than 10 years ago in the Indonesian case. But that term also embodies how those few people engaged in those acts of violence understand it themselves. So in terms of the choice of terms, I think that, you know, I'm not trying to come up with a piece of jargon to throw out there because people then take it, cite it, misuse it, and move on. I think I'm less interested in, in some ways it's unfortunate to sort of coin a new term, a neologism, because then people just cite the term and think they've understood your argument and they usually don't. So people say, oh, there's bossism in Indonesia, and they cite my book. No, there isn't. There's not bossism in Indonesia. It's something different. There's a question here. It's 5-2. Shall we hear them all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep the questions short and difficult.
Okay. Yeah. Okay. I guess what we do now. Here and here. Yeah. Okay. Maybe the same. I just wanted to chuck the much abused Marx quote at you um, in terms of um, the philosophers understanding the world, but the point being to change it and how social science fits within that. Um, I mean, I submitted an assignment to the Open University last night and um, it did exhibit some of the qualities that my friends accuse social science of being quite wishy-washy in terms of it's a bit of this, but it's a bit of that, but you can't be too sure about this, etc. Um, now, you mentioned about the think tanks and the, the people that have vested interest in universities, for instance, being better placed to do research than that, which, which is a good point. But I just wondered if you had a statement on how, how, so, what different social science actually makes to the world what, or what it can or should or might not want to make rather than just talk, if you like. Okay, okay. Uh, on the first question, mixed methods. I mean, I think, yes, you, you put your finger on, on the right turn. There, there's a huge amount of research that is methods-driven rather than problems-driven, and the tendency to encourage students, or more than encourage students, to engage in mixed methods research is evident when I read manuscripts, right, American recent PhD students or tenure reviews, that everyone has to show that they can do both. And the danger there is, of course, that people are doing uh, both not particularly well. And that to burden people with having to do both um, is a heavy burden to, to place on people. And, and if it's, oh, yeah, you have to have your chapter that does this or your two chapters that do that, and then you read it closely and think, well, he, he pretends he speaks the language. He doesn't. He only speaks Farsi. He doesn't really speak Indonesian. He, you know, so his fantastic comparison between Iran and Indonesia, you know, it's, it's incomplete. Plus, the, the numbers chapter is not going to impress the, the people who are familiar with that literature. And I think that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, let people specialize. Let people go with their strengths as opposed to regression towards the mean. Um, that would be my, my suggestion. In, in terms of uh, social science, I think the first instance is... Um, as teachers, uh, the university should remain a place that is not so deeply integrated into the, the world as we know it, that it's your last chance as a student before you get sucked into the world to stop and, and look at it through a glass darkly uh, and, and to see it for the, the crazy place that it is um, with some kind of distance on it. Um, and that's part of our job, I think. Um, but I, I think in terms of speaking truth to power, that's, to, uh, that, that's obviously a certain kind of conceit but it's that everything has its own conceits, and um, and I think there's that uh, as a conceit, as opposed to the being policy relevant in a way uh, that is actually simply um, reiterating policy speak without saying something necessarily new. Just being foot soldiers in a machine that will go on without you as an academic, it really will. Um, and the last would be to contribute to specific things going on. Uh, in the real world, in terms of investigative journalism, in terms of, of real-world efforts to change the world. And there are lots of academics here at the LSE and otherwise who do that. Um, in other words, whose audience reaches beyond governments, reaches beyond the World Bank and so forth. There are people here who do that, and I think that's worth doing. That sounds like a good note to end on. In fact, John does that. He's one of the people around here that does that. And, and the nicest demonstration I got of that was uh, we're having an Asia Forum in um, Singapore in April, so next month. And in the lead-up to it, you ask various academics, will they do op-ed pieces that might, you know, 
G up the local population about what we're proposing to do. So John is speaking at the Asia Forum and, you know, John, will you do an op-ed piece? I get down to Singapore and open the main uh, daily newspaper there. The op-ed piece for most of our academics, you expect to be, you know, a thin column and you barely notice it if you're not actually looking for it. This was half a page with a big headline and a big picture in the middle and I thought, okay, this is, going to, this is impact. This is high impact stuff. So that was a nice note to end on, John. Thanks very much for closing the series and thank you all for coming.